Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening, and welcome to to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. I'm Wes McGowey, chair of the club's LGBT forum. This evening's program, At the Crossroads, Oppression and Resilience in Diverse LGBT Communities, is with Dr. Kimberly Balsam. Kimberly Balsam, PhD, is president of the American Psychological Association's Division 44, the Society for Psychological Study of LGBT Issues. In 2010, she received their Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award, and in 2012, became a fellow of this division. She is professor in the Pacific Graduate School of Psychology at Palo Alto University, where she is also director of the LGBTQ Area of Emphasis and co-director of the Center for LGBTQ Evidence-Based Applied Studies and of the LGBTQ Emphasis Area within the PhD program. Dr. Balsam received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Vermont in 2003 and completed her postdoctoral research training at the University of Washington in 2006. She has had continuous funding from the National Institutes of Health for her research on LGBT populations since 2003. Dr. Balsam's research focuses broadly on the health and well-being of stigmatized populations with an emphasis on ethnically diverse lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals and couples. She has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, many in top journals, in the field of psychology. She has conducted several studies on the risk for violence over the lifespan among LGBT people and the impact of experiences of violence on mental health. Several of her articles have also focused on LGBT people of color and the psychological impact of intersectional oppression. Her current research focuses on same-sex and heterosexual couples, looking at the impact of legal status on relationship well-being. In addition to conducting research, Dr. Balsam is a clinical psychologist and worked directly with clients for 20 years. Please welcome Dr. Kimberly Balsam. Thanks. Um, Hello and welcome everybody. Um, I want to welcome all of you to my talk and thank you so much for taking the time to join me here today. Um, It's really an honor and a great privilege to be invited to talk about something that I care so deeply about. Um, As uh, Wes said, I've been immersed in LGBT communities for the past 20 years and I've been had the honor of doing this research since 1999. And so my career, interestingly, has really spanned this time of great change in society. Um, And I've really been very fortunate to have a front row seat uh, to some of the ways in which this backdrop of social change has affected individuals, both through my research, so I've done surveys and interviews with people, and also as a psychotherapist working with many LGBT clients uh, over a period of two decades. 
And so I'm here today uh, to talk about being at the crossroads and the fact that our work isn't done. And I believe that we're really finding ourselves at this crossroads with respect to LGBT rights. And we have some decisions to make about our future directions. And I'm going to talk some about what that might look like. And so just to give an overview of what's to come tonight, I'm going to start with this idea of a crossroads, which I came up with as the title of the talk back in June. And then when I really looked into the meaning of the word, I think it, it fits quite well. I'm going to lay out some basic terms and concepts that I think are important and then review some LGBT history from the past five years, emphasizing the pace of change and how that's picked up. And um, I'm going to talk about what are some of the problems that remain. So we've made progress. We still have a lot of problems. And talk about who and what has been left out of the discourse uh, over these years. Then I'll move into talking about a new paradigm that can inform our understanding of oppression and resilience among LGBT people. And finally, talk about how at this crossroads we can really begin to envision what the path forward looks like for LGBT communities. So I'm going to start out with the idea of a crossroads. And I'm going to define it in three different ways that can be all be found in Merriam-Webster dictionary. So the first way is an intersection of two or more roads. And as you'll see later in my talk, this idea of an intersection is very salient for LGBT communities as we think about our path forward. A crossroads is also a central meeting place, a place where we need to come together and listen to all voices. And as you'll see later, I'm going to argue that this is something we definitely need to do. And finally, a crossroads is a crucial point where a decision must be made. And this, I think, is the meaning that I was considering when I first envisioned this talk back in June, um, shortly after the Orlando massacre. So I think with respect to LGBT rights, again, we've come so far, but there's so much more work to do. And we really have to decide that we're going to start looking at things in new ways so that we can see what this path forward might be. So I'm going to talk now about some basic terminology and concepts, many of which are familiar to people in the audience. But I think even now in 2016, it's important to start out with these, um, first of all, to make sure we're all on the same page. And second of all, because they relate to some of the paradigm shifts that I'm going to talk about. So the first concept, of course, is sexual orientation, which is the broad umbrella term uh, that we use. And it's actually very multidimensional. And so usually the three dimensions we think of are identity. Um, so a person identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, behavior, who a person engages in sexual behavior with, and attraction, so feelings of attraction. And there's actually, you know, notably lack of complete overlap between these three dimensions. Um, I also want to make sure that we don't leave out the term queer. Um, this is important for the talk uh, for a number of reasons. This was once used as a pejorative term, um, but really was reclaimed to consider identities that are sort of less binary than just lesbian, gay, bisexual, or heterosexual, um, but also to move the discourse in a less conformist way. And I think queer is also a generation-specific term. I see some of my students in the audience here. Um, and it's generally, again, um, I think we need to look to next generations about you know, what direction are our communities moving. 
So is sexual orientation categorical or is it continuous? I think this is an interesting question and I think it, it's considered to be both. Um, you know, dating all the way back to Kinsey, people have looked at it, you know, on a scale from exclusively heterosexual to exclusively homosexual. Um, and at the same time, people do claim identity labels that are categorical. Um, the Klein sexual orientation grid is just something that I want to mention that broadens out to even more dimensions. So on the Klein grid, we have attraction, behavior, and identity, but people are also asked when they fill this measure out to rate what their fantasies are, who they socialize with, what their emotional preferences, and what their lifestyle is. And it includes another dimension, which is time. And I think this is critical. So people are asked how they felt in the past, the present, and how they would like to be ideally. And I think this dimension of time is really important as we think about this ever-shifting society and think about the fact that people change, too, within the context of that society. So that's what I'm going to say about the concept of sexual orientation. The next one is gender identity, which is um, a person's internal sense of their gender. What do they feel themselves to be? Um, and gender expression is related, but it's the outward expression of that, how, how one's gender is expressed on the outside through clothing, style, mannerisms, and other, other forms of expression. And I think that gender identity... Um, and gender expression are both distinct but also related to sexual orientation. So I just want to make sure we're not conflating those when we're talking about LGBT. Now transgender, of course, is the term for, it's a broad umbrella term for people whose gender identity differs from the sex that they were assigned at birth. In contrast, the term cisgender, which hopefully you all have heard, is a term for people whose gender identity is the same as the category they were assigned at birth. And I think recently, entering into the discourse, we've been talking more about gender nonconformity or gender nonconforming people, um, a more broad term for people whose gender expression is different, not only from sex assigned at birth, but from conventional expectations. A salient conceptual issue here is whether gender itself is binary or non-binary. So binary gender is male, female, man, woman, and a person whose gender is binary fits within one of those two categories. On the other hand, non-binary gender is looking more broadly, that there are many ways to identify that may not fall within one of these two categories of man and woman. And a person who identifies their gender as non-binary um, is a person who may identify with both or neither, or it may fluctuate over time. And you may have heard the term genderqueer, which is one of many terms that are now being used to refer to a person who has non-binary gender. Okay, so I want to just problematize before I move on from terminology, the use of the term LGBT, which I will use, but I want to problematize it. Because first of all, I want to acknowledge that in the US and throughout the world, this term doesn't capture all of the different cultural variations on sexual orientation and gender diversity. Um, I also want to, to say that it doesn't encompass identities that are perhaps more fluid and less binary, um, and that it can 
obscure the power and privilege differences within LGBT communities. So sometimes we say LGBT, but who we're really talking about is lesbians and gay men, and the bisexual and transgender parts of the population get obscured. And finally, it sort of brings together sexual orientation and gender identity um, in a way that might obscure those differences. So with all of that said, um, it's the term that we've got, it's the term that I'm gonna use tonight, but I wanted to put that out there because I think it's relevant to what I'm gonna be saying later. Okay, so now I'm gonna move on and talk about the events of the last five years. So it's beyond the scope of this talk to go over all of LGBT history throughout time, um, but I think as we all are aware, well into the 20th century, LGBT people were highly stigmatized, hidden and subject to all kinds of institutional discrimination, violence, criminalization, and forced mental health treatment to cure them. This began to change with the gay rights movement, along with other social movements in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s, and the removal of homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in my profession in 1973. This really paved the way for research to occur looking at healthy adjustment of LGBT people. And in society, we saw a gradual attitude shift and more people coming out, more people being able to live openly. And certainly the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the 1980s really brought LGBT people into the public eye. However, a key point is that even by 2000, and even more recently than that, the majority of Americans still continued to think that homosexuality was wrong, and LGBT people still were left out of many of the important social institutions, um, including marriage, which we'll talk about. And most LGBT people basically lacked a good life script, lacked visible role models, um, and a person growing up could easily feel very marginalized. So this began to change in 2000 when Vermont became the first U.S. state to provide legal recognition to same-sex couples. And then in the decade to follow, there was a gradual shift in the social and legal landscape. But things really picked up as of 2011. And so what I want to talk about is just this pace of change, um, beginning with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011. And so historically, prejudice, discrimination against LGBT people in the military um, goes back long before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but that was the most recent manifestation, of course, and even resulted in more discharges, even though it was intended uh, to do something else. And so, um, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell really was sort of the beginning of showing this movement towards inclusion, at least of LGB. The trans people have only um, more recently um, been allowed openly to serve in the military. Um, but again, despite this, LGBT people were in the military um, and the law didn't actually keep people up. But this was sort of the beginning of this rapid period of change. But then I think, the and the thing that our movement has really focused on is marriage equality, which became the focal point for the LGBT rights movement in the last five years. So we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. After the Vermont law in 2000, there was really pretty slow progress. Um, but then in June of 2013, the Supreme Court issued the first um, two of three important decisions, um, overturning uh, Proposition 8 and the Defense of Marriage Act. And at that point, um, we suddenly started to see a very rapid pace of change. And so by the spring of 2015, 37 states were allowing same-sex marriage. Um, and then we have the Obergefell v. Hodges decision in 2015, a little over a year ago, and the final 13 states, suddenly now everybody can get married. And so when we think about this, it's a pretty rapid pace of change. And I think by the summer of 2015, the discourse, at least visibly, was one of optimism. Another thing that I don't want to lose sight of is that attitudes actually changed along with these institutional changes. And so um, this is kind of shocking that as late as 2004, Gallup polls showed that Americans um, were pretty evenly split with a little bit more than half believing that same-sex relations between adults should not be legal. Um, but by 2016, only 29%, um, still there's 29%, but only 29% of people thought so. Another change has, of course, been greater cultural visibility. And so um, with the marriage equality movement um, has come lots more media coverage um, throughout the media. And I think it's almost impossible now um, between that and Internet access for a young person who's maybe first becoming aware of an LGBT identity to have no visible role models, to have nowhere to turn to get this information. However, um, I want to argue that this is not the end of the story. And I, I know I'm not the only person to be saying this. Military and the marriage are two big institutional policy changes that have affected LGBT people in very tangible ways. But it's not the end of the story. And I think, for example, um, we can all agree that the Civil Rights Act uh, did not get rid of racism, nor did electing the nation's first black president. Um, also, you know, since when did marriage become a panacea for all problems? And so I think um, as anyone who is or has been married can attest, um, it's 
it's one area of life. It's, it's not all. And we'll talk about what some of those other important areas are. Um, in terms of the military, I had the great fortune of being in the right place at the right time and being able to conduct some research directly with um, LGB military personnel after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I can tell you, uh, coming from them, that they are still experiencing prejudice and discrimination in the military. So you can't just legislate away prejudice right? The attitudes, they might be shifting and the social structures and laws can shift us in the right direction, um, but you can't legislate all of that away. And so I think what we need to do is take a step back and look at the voices and issues that have been left out of the discourse. Um, and I think those are highlighted if we look more closely at the very recent past at what's happened in 2015 and 2016. And so I'm going to talk about the political backlash against LGBT people, and I'm going to talk about uh, the event in Orlando on June 12th. 2016. And I think both of these highlight some of the work that has yet to be done. So in terms of the backlash, it's really not uncommon in social movements, of course, um, for major steps forward to be met with some sort of backlash. And we really saw that starting in 2015. We began to see number of bills across the country um, aimed at eroding LGBT rights, eroding equality. Um, there were over 100 anti-LGBT bills introduced nationwide um, just since 2015. Many of these were um, under the rubric of religious freedom restoration, giving people the right to discriminate if their uh, religion says that they should. And they really spanned the gamut of different areas of life from adoption and foster care, employment, and most notably the bathroom bills that we've heard a lot about in the media um, that are aimed at transgender and gender nonconforming people dictating what bathroom uh, people are allowed to use. So we can really see here that marriage has created some protections, but without others, um, a person isn't free from discrimination. And I think that this really highlights the degree of structural discrimination that still remains. One thing I'd recommend looking up if you're interested is the Movement Advancement Project, MAP, has a series of maps online um, that shows state by state the extent of discriminatory or protective laws for LGBT people in the United States. And it's very sobering to look at this um, and see how far we still have to go. So looking across the board at all kinds of discriminatory laws, only 14 out of 50 states are rated um, as really being uh, fully progressive and safe for LGBT people. Um, notably, employment discrimination still exists in most states. And so, you know, a person can get married and then be fired from their job. And so you can't have spousal benefits uh, for insurance if you can be fired from your job for being LGBT. Um, there are barriers to parenting and family formation in many states, um, including adoption, second parent adoption, foster parenting, um, and private agencies qualifying people based on being LGBT. Um, LGBT people are still overrepresented in the criminal justice system and are more likely to face maltreatment um, in having contact with the police and corrections officers, much more likely to be segregated or in solitary confinement while incarcerated. Um, their lack uh, 
legitimate hate crime laws protecting LGBT people in many states. And then, of course, our educational system. And we've heard some about this with some movement to protect people against bullying. But a pretty sobering statistic is that in the past year, up to 30 percent of LGBT youth have missed at least a day of school due to feeling unsafe or uncomfortable at school. So there's lots of discrimination that still exists out there. And I think the backlash brought that to our attention. And then June 12, 2016 happened. And a lone shooter in Orlando, Florida, um, killed 49 people, mostly LGBT people of Latin American descent. And I know that many of us woke up that morning to this horrible news. And for those of us who live and work within LGBT communities, um, the weeks that followed really were filled with discussion, tears, and lots of soul searching um, and looking at questions that seemed really unanswerable. And I think it's really not an overstatement to say that this event shook up LGBT communities to our core. And it really brought into clear view, even beyond what we had been seeing with the backlash legislation, the ongoing oppression, violence, and the fear of violence that LGBT people live with on a daily basis. It's in interesting to note that the language used for these bathroom bills has to do with safety and violence, as if somehow LGBT people are going to be the perpetrators of violence, when the reality is, is quite starkly the opposite. And so issues of violence and safety are very salient for LGBT people. LGBT people um, in terms of their own safety. And we have to think not only about these kinds of structural discrimination, but also violence. Another thing that Orlando really highlighted and brought to the forefront is the intersection of LGBT with other identities, particularly ethnic and racial identity. And so I think for LGBT people of color, particularly those who are Latino, Latina, um, seeing themselves in these victims um, was a pretty uh, stark and salient experience. What this really highlighted, and if we look at the statistics, and my own research has been um, focused on this, is that LGBT people are at much greater risk for all kinds of violence over the lifespan. Um, childhood abuse, in my dissertation research, I looked at even within families, the LGBT child is more likely to be targeted for violence. Um, at school and in communities, in terms of bullying, physical and verbal victimization um, in childhood. And then in adulthood, much higher rates of being physically assaulted and sexually assaulted. And so violence and the fear of violence are a reality for LGBT people. And it's interesting to me that although this was really my original research area, over the last several years, the research I'm always invited to talk about has to do with marriage equality. Um, it's a safer topic to talk about. Um, it's much more pleasant to think about people walking down the aisle than to think about the reality of violence. And so I think when Orlando happened, it sort of brought this back into the discourse. And it's necessary because it's something that we have to talk about. Before I talk about the path forward, I have to mention one more aspect of taking stock of where we stand in 2016. And I think that's looking at health disparities. 
And so for those of us that work in psychology, health professions, we know that not only do discrimination and violent exist, violence exist, but health disparities exist. In terms of mental health, and this is another area of my own research, um, there are slight but consistent elevations in problems like depression and anxiety, as well as PTSD among LGBT people. There are also higher rates of some health risk behaviors, including um, substance abuse, alcohol and drug, and tobacco use, and lower health care utilization um, and access. And this is true even with some of the changes in the health care system. Many people avoid seeking care. They delay getting care. Um, they don't have a regular provider because of fear of stigma and discrimination, not wanting to come out to providers, and lack of culturally competent care and, in fact, discriminatory practices by providers. These things are all particularly true for the more marginalized within the community, LGBT people of color, and particularly transgender and gender nonconforming people who often lack access to appropriate care, particularly um, medical interventions that would support uh, their gender expression. HIV and AIDS remains uh, a disparity, and um, new infections, uh, gay and bisexual men, are overrepresented, and this is particularly true for men of color as well. And in terms of physical, major physical health diseases, um, we have a little bit less information um, as people are just now starting to be tracked with LGBT identity status. But there also appears to be elevated risk uh, for certain physical health diseases. So overall, when asked to rate their physical and emotional health, LGBT people perceive their health and well-being to be lower than that of their cisgender and heterosexual counterparts. So we can't talk about where we are in 2016 without looking at this important fact. We're not equal if our health is not equal. Okay, so what have we learned from the past five years? Well, I think one thing is looking at who has been left out of the discourse. And when we look at this trajectory of the LGBT rights movement and we see the reality of where people's lives actually are, I think it becomes really clear that the marriage equality movement in particular has used as its exemplars those who tend to be white, who tend to be gay or lesbian, as opposed to bisexual, transgender, non-binary, uh, those who are cisgender, as well as able-bodied and generally socioeconomically more advantaged. And so in particular, those who are bisexual, transgender, and people of color have been left in the margins of this discourse and of this movement. So these are the people who have benefited the least from the recent movement towards equality. These are the voices of those who are at greatest risk for discrimination and violence. So all of the things that I mentioned, um, the risk for violence, uh, experiences of discrimination and health disparities, experience is greater for the more marginalized within the community. These are really the voices that we need to listen to if we want to be able to understand the path forward for our communities. 
And so just a few things about the specifics of these populations. In terms of bisexual people, it's kind of astonishing to me that I still hear so many myths and stereotypes when I talk to people in the community uh, about bisexual populations. I think there's really a misconception that this is a less oppressed group, that bisexual people have certain privileges because of you know, being able to pass. And while that may be true on the one hand, that somebody may not be as openly visible, especially you know, um, when they are partnered with somebody in what appears to be a heterosexual relationship, um, the fact is that bisexual people, when you look um, within uh, sexual orientation minorities, um, report the most uh, feelings of stigma and the most health disparities. And in fact, bisexual people experience prejudice and discrimination from both sides, from LGBT communities and from society at large. Certainly transgender and gender nonconforming people. Um, this is a group that is much more likely to be experiencing all of these problems, four times as likely to be living in poverty in large part um, because of employment discrimination. Um, lots of discrimination and experiences of violence that are much higher even than uh, experienced by the average LGB person, and many other problems related to access to healthcare, as I mentioned before. And so really when you're trying to find a place to live, trying to get a job, trying to just get by, the ability to get married isn't as important as sort of getting these basic needs met. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that uh, gay people now, feel they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. 
And people of color are another important voice that have been left out of much of the discourse um, within LGBT communities. And so LGBT people of color, much more so, are likely to be living in poverty and, again, to experience multiple forms of prejudice, discrimination, and violence, both within ethnic and cultural communities and within LGBT communities for this intersection of identities. There are other demographic differences that are important to note as well. Um, geography. So if you go to the Movement Advancement Project map website and you look at these maps, you can see certain patterns of people living in more conservative areas um, and people living outside of big population centers um, like where we are right now. Um, these people are much more subject um, to the prejudice, discrimination, and violence that still exist. Age is another factor. So our LGBT elders are really facing a crisis of receiving uh, culturally appropriate care as they retire and experience health problems. Disability is another issue that can, you know, people who are uh, dependent on others um, for assistance can face challenges in finding appropriate services. And finally, religion. And this is another important area that, again, I think we have some myths and stereotypes about. But in fact, religion and spirituality are very important in the lives of many LGBT people. And yet these can be the very sources of a great deal of prejudice and discrimination for LGBT people. So I want to talk now about a new paradigm for making sense of the current state of things and where we need to go. And I think it's really time for a new paradigm for thinking about LGBT communities in the 21st century, um, post-marriage equality and post-Orlando. I think we need some new ways of thinking about the problems that still exist and the voices that have been left out of the discourse. And I think this new paradigm has to be multidimensional. I think it has to challenge what we define as normative. I think it needs to account for intersections of identities. And I think it needs to look at individuals' experience, not just at the big picture and not just at the laws and policies. So I'll go through each of those. In terms of multidimensional, what I'm thinking about is social ecological theories. And so these are theories that look at a person embedded within multiple layers of social context. And so we have the individual that's embedded within interpersonal relationships and then communities um, made up of those relationships, and then the cultural practices, and then societies, institutions, and policies in, in sort of the outer layers. And I think that our movement um, of late has sort of focused more on these outer layers. But and when we look at some of the things that I've talked about with health disparities, I think we need to we see some other areas where we need to intervene. In terms of challenging what we view as normative, I like to look to things like queer theory and other perspectives like critical race theory that critique the idea of what's normative in our society. And I think these tensions between are we assimilationist, do we want to be just like everybody else, versus radical, we want to change society along with us, um, have roots really dating all the way back in LGBT rights movements. But I think one thing that most people in LGBT communities um, can agree on is that in the past, 
being LGBT came with sort of a freedom to explore things like gender roles and life scripts that were outside of the norm. And I think we've moved in a direction where we are accessing more of those social institutions in recent years. But I think a critical question to ask is then, what is lost? And have we stopped questioning what's normative? And in fact, are we becoming part of the problem and not the solution? And I think it's important to think about two ideas, one of heteronormativity and the other of homonormativity. So heteronormativity is this belief that there are two legitimate binary genders, man and woman, and that heterosexuality is the norm and people have to have heterosexual relationships. But on the other hand, I think we're seeing a movement towards homonormativity, um, and this is a more recent term that really refers to the tendency for our movement um, as we've become more accepted in culture and policy to narrow our focus about what it means to be LGBT. And from this perspective, even marriage equality itself um, can be questioned. And again, not to say that marriage um, equality isn't a great thing, but I think questioning, you know, is that the end of the story? Is that the ideal that we all um, should be ascribing to? Because as we've seen, clearly many people are left out of this movement. Intersectionality, um, and this is a term from Kimberly Crenshaw over two decades ago, says that we need to look at oppressions simultaneously, all forms of oppression. And so all of a person's identities are salient to understand their experience, and all of these social forces are important to understand at a social level. And so we need to look not just at heterosexism, not just at transphobia, but also all other forms of oppression in order to understand people's lived experiences. And finally, as a psychologist, I want to argue that we need a trauma-informed psychological perspective. And so we know that LGBT people experience greater risk of violence over the lifespan. This may or may not be related to sexual orientation and gender identity, um, but to fully understand trauma and its role in our communities, I think is critical in order to move forward. And so I wanna introduce four concepts about this. One is cumulative trauma. So cumulative trauma is this idea that exposure to stressful events over the lifespan kind of builds up and can increase somebody's potential risk for negative health and mental health outcomes exponentially. And we know that for LGBT people, when they experience one event, it's really a culmination of many events. So there's no way that anybody, even in 2016, lives without some forms of prejudice and discrimination. And so trauma builds up over time, and the stigma of being LGBT interacts with individual occurrences of violence. Historical trauma is another important lens. And so historical trauma, the term is often used to refer to things like slavery, um, like the genocide of Native Americans in North America, the Holocaust, looking back on how trauma and the legacy of trauma are handed down through communities. But this is true for LGBT people too. And so if we think about, for example, a young man on a date with another man, why isn't he reaching out to hold his date's hand in public? It's not just about marriage laws. It's not just about access to the military. It's about whether or not he feels safe. And whether or not he feels safe is related to the historical legacy of trauma that's been handed down through generations. 
there's historical trauma within individuals' lives too, and we need to we need to not forget our elders who came out and came into their identity at times when it was much less safe to be LGBT. And so just because society has changed, that legacy within a person hasn't necessarily changed. Another important concept is vicarious trauma, the impact of being exposed to trauma that's experienced by others. And I think Orlando brought this into sharp relief, um, that we saw that people were deeply affected by seeing others who were similar to themselves um, experiencing a trauma, even if they didn't know any of the victims or didn't experience it themselves. And finally, the idea of insidious trauma or minority stress. And so Really, what we know is there's an additional burden of stress experienced by individuals in marginalized groups, and that this can take many forms. It can take the event of a big incident of violence or discrimination, but there are also day-to-day -day forms that are more insidious and ongoing. So rejection and fear of rejection, um, microaggression, which is a subtle form of oppression experienced as part of everyday life. Um, an example for a transgender person being called the wrong gender pronoun. Internalized oppression, taking in negative beliefs, I am bad because I am an LGBT person. And so what we know when we take a step back and use this trauma-informed perspective is that healing from trauma comes from facing the trauma. And I think if we avoid the trauma, it only makes the symptoms worse. In other words, the only way out is through. And at the same time, we have to not get stuck in the mire. We can't get, we, we must simultaneously be able to have hope and envision a life past trauma. So we have to face it, but not dwell on it. And we have to be able to allow that new frameworks of understanding might illuminate the path forward. And so in my last few minutes, I'm gonna talk about this path forward, drawing from all of this information that we have from the past five years and drawing from these new perspectives. And so I want to think about a lens through which we can envision our path forward in this challenging and ever-changing social context. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. 
Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And to do so, I want to return to this idea of a crossroads. So if you remember, our first definition of a crossroads is an intersection of two roads coming together. And I think it's really imperative for us to think in terms of intersectionality. So can we understand and can we support sexual and gender identities while also seeing their interactions and intersections with other identities? Can we think about heterosexism and transphobia as linked with other forms of oppression in our society? Can we begin to think beyond binaries? And I would argue that as we begin to look at both gender and sexual identity as non-binary, that we will begin to see that life is much more complex than we previously thought. In fact, in the field of psychology, one thing we know is that psychological flexibility is a hallmark of psychological health and that psychological flexibility really allows people to be resilient and heal in the face of trauma and negative life events. And so keeping this flexibility in mind as we are stand at the middle of these two roads, I think I want to argue for a both and perspective instead of an either or. I think we need to be able to see the categories and the spaces in between. I think that we need to begin to look beyond binaries and look at things in a more complex and nuanced way and welcome in new perspectives. The second definition is of a crossroads as a central meeting place. And I think here we need to widen our perspective and include more voices in the discourse at this central meeting place. We need to center by listening the voice, to the voices on the margins. And what's in the margins may change. But by listening to those who are most vulnerable, I think, first of all, we protect the most vulnerable. So those who are on the margins are the ones that most need assistance with violence, discrimination, health disparities. This is where the work is. This is where the work needs to be done. But I think we also need to listen to the margins because of the unique perspectives that the margins offer us. For example, what can a transgender man tell us about his lived experience? Uh, how can he speak to gender roles and stereotypes, for example? What can he tell us about sexism? What can an African-American bisexual woman tell us about how racism, sexism, and biphobia look like? What, what do they look like from the inside? I think that we can learn to understand our world in more nuanced ways by centering on these voices. But to do this, we really have to extend uh, and welcome more people in. And perhaps there's a benefit for all of us in being able to question and critique our social institutions. At this central meeting place, we need to be willing to have difficult dialogues across difference and about uh, difficult topics. And we need to be willing to work as allies, um, even as we look at our own privilege and oppression. 
And we need to make room for difficult topics. And so violence, for example, is not nearly as comfortable to talk about as getting married. But we have to push through and confront these issues in order to move forward. Finally, in thinking about the crossroads, it's a crucial point where a decision must be made. It's our final definition. And I think it's up to us. So can we decide together that the equality we've achieved in 2016 isn't enough? And are we willing to go outside of our comfort zones and into the uncertainty of tackling the complex challenges that face us? Are we really willing to get uncomfortable in order to enact this change? So I think we have a decision. One more thing that I want to say is in looking at the path forward um, from the crossroads and into our future, I want to extend this idea about the hallmark LGBT experience of coming out. And I think here we need to look beyond the sort of Eurocentric narrative of the white lesbian or gay person who has an aha moment and then does a big reveal to their family and friends. Because really coming out can mean many things to many people. And I think we all have some self-reflection about what it means to come out to ourselves across different identities and in different social contexts. Because if we really think about it, I think what everybody wants is to come into a truer sense of themselves, whatever that may be. And in order to do that, we need to create a social context that gives people the freedom to really explore what these truths are. And these truths may not fit neatly into a category. They may not fit into a binary. They may not even fit within narratives that we have been told in our lives so far. And so I think we need to move towards creating social contexts where people have the ability to listen to themselves and find their truths and live within the both and perspective instead of an either or perspective. And I think in this way, coming out is both an individual and a community experience. So I've come to the end of my time, and so I want to just end, before we go into discussion, um, with an invitation. So I would like to invite you to meet me at the crossroads and really envision what the future could look like with liberation for LGBT people. And so let's imagine a world where we can see both our similarities and our differences and really celebrate both of those. So I invite you all into the dialogue, and I look forward to the discussion. And thank you. So our first question is, you described big advances in policy and in the military and in marriage equality. What is the next institution LGBT movements should target? I mean, I think that's a good question. I think. I think there are so many, so I don't, I don't know that, there, that there's one answer for that, because I think to give a single answer would be to sort of go against the spirit of what I, um, of what I just talked about. I think we can't just target one thing. I think there are so many different areas. I mean, certainly there are big ones, you know, employment, um, religion, um, all kinds of issues related to the well-being of transgender and gender nonconforming people. But I don't think we need to limit ourselves to just a single issue. I think, in fact, that's sort of created this either-or perspective that sort of everybody has to get on board with a particular issue, um, as opposed to looking at the complexity and nuance of all of the changes that need to occur. 
Given that sexism, like racism, did not disappear with the Civil Rights Act, how do you think sexism affects the LGBT movement, and how does the LGBT movement affect sexism? Very interesting question. Um, this is actually something I'm, I'm very interested in um, having, and I, I know who this question came from, um, in, in having uh, dialogue and debate about um, within communities, because I think... Um, I think it's a multifaceted question, right? So I think that um, just as uh, gender identity and sexual identity are two different things, um, I think that we have a feminist perspective um, within LGBT communities, as well as um, the perspective of transgender and non-binary people. And sometimes there have been clashes um, between those communities. I think any time oppression is involved, that people can stop listening to one another and um, kind of get their back up about what they think the right way is. And I think part of my envisioning this crossroads as a meeting place and having difficult dialogues is to be able to listen to the value in all of those experiences. So listen to what feminism is and means and how it's informed our communities, um, as well as what does it mean when we then broaden out and look at gender not as being binary? How do we reconfigure um, sexism? I think, you know, the LGBT community historically has not been immune to sexism. And I think, um, you know, women within the community will certainly readily tell you that. And I think it's also more complex than that. So I think it's really a both-and perspective. And that's um, it's a dialogue I'm very interested in facilitating and, and being a part of. So hopefully that answers the question. Hi. Hi. Um, is, can everyone hear? Um, so my question is, do you know of any programs or initiatives that are taking this sort of intersectional approach that you described? I don't know that I can speak to a particular program or initiative, but I know that um, I think already there are many of us out there in academic circles and policy circles who were thinking along these lines. And then, um, as I said in the talk, I think um, that the events of 2015 and, tw and 2016 really brought this into sharp view. I just happened to see today that a talk that has even a very similar title to this talk is being given... Um, in New York City, uh, I forget which university, but in about a week. So um, I think, you know, it's, I think across the country, um, the need for an intersectional perspective, particularly after Orlando, um, I think is coming up. I think also the fact of the um, police violence in African-American communities that's occurred simultaneously, um, and it's been occurring for a long time, but um, there've been unfortunately many, many incidents um, in the past year, along with Orlando, has really facilitated facilitated um, some more dialogue about what some of the areas of common ground are and the safety and, and lack of safety. And some issues, I think, are similar and some issues are different. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that we need to think about is this ability to work across difference. Um, and with respect to vicarious trauma, and this is an anecdote from a former student that I think she wouldn't mind if I shared it. So when, um, when I asked uh, this person of the millennial generation um, what her experience had been post-Orlando, she said that her... Um, experience was really wishing that people in her life had checked in with her more and acknowledged 
the vicarious trauma that she was experiencing as an LGBT person, that she was wanting people to be saying to her, you know, how are you doing? She wanted people to kind of get that there was vicarious trauma. But then she sort of had this aha moment, which I really conceptualize as an intersectional moment of thinking, okay, wait a second, after Charleston and various other events that happened to African-American people, I didn't reach out to my black friends and ask them, how are you doing? And sort of those two, you know, the source of privilege and oppression came together. And I think that's a really good example of this crossroads, that as we look deeper into what are some of these common experiences of privilege, oppression, and resilience, I think that can help pave the way for how we move forward. What would you say to somebody who's in a position of privilege, um, whether it's somebody who's cisgendered and heterosexual or within the LGBT communities, white, gay, and lesbian to get buy-in to meet you at the crossroads? That is a very good question that I would love to pose back to the audience. Um, but I think, you know, using psychological perspectives, um, I think thinking about my experience as a therapist for all of those years, I mean, how do you get anybody to talk about a difficult topic that they don't want to talk about? And I think, you know, the more we can invite people in and the more we can make room for different perspectives. I mean, I think one issue that was raised um, to me by somebody recently is about bathrooms, right? And so the bathroom bills, um, I think we can all agree that people um, need a safe place to go to the bathroom and that people should be able to determine uh, their gender identity and what bathroom fits for them. Um, at the same time, bathrooms are a very personal and private place. And some people are going to have issues. I mean, I even have heard rumblings when I've been in spaces um, in the past year where there's been a gender neutral or all gender bathroom um, of people, even very well-meaning people, having feelings of discomfort. And I think we can't sweep that under the rug. So I think one way of getting people to start talking about um, their own privilege or to come into this dialogue, to come into the crossroads, is to give room for different perspectives within certain parameters, of course. I think we have to be careful um, not to propagate um, bias speech and you know we get into the territory of microaggressions. But I think the more um, people can be welcomed in and know that their perspective is gonna be heard, then I think there can be more of a productive dialogue. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.